we need to do one that I think probably maybe God is saying, let's let's do one for wherever we are. I hope this message is that uh, just seeking God in these and this, these verses came to me. And I think um, I, I often have to limit myself when I'm preparing a sermon um, for you guys and for the church that normally are normally here. Uh, they're going to think this is a massive relief. Uh, this is not going to be as long as all the other sermons I do. Um, as it is the evening, so I'm going to give you a little bit of a break this time. Um, but it is very difficult when you're in the Word and you just want to tell people everything about what it says. So we've been doing Haggai, but I thought, let, let's do something else for tonight. And this is called a living sacrifice. And simply all we do, we read out the verses, and then what we do is we, we say what it says. What do the verses say? And then when we've said what the verses say, we then look at the meaning and the application. What must come first, whenever, in my view, if you're preaching, um, is that Scripture must be first and prominent and priority in everything you do. And so this is what we're looking at today. And I thought the purpose of this, I think, is to remind ourselves as Christians, even to those that don't believe, maybe, that the reason why Christians do anything is because of God's great mercy. And that's what we look at in a, a living sacrifice. The only way we're able to even offer ourselves to God in the first place and receive salvation through Christ alone is because God works his mercy in us. Without him, this doesn't work. That being said, we'll also learn this evening is that this mercy from God has a purpose in helping us to resist the ungodly pattern of the world. When we fully understand the mercy of God on our lives right now, even in this moment as we sit here today, that praise and worship goes first to God. Then in that knowledge, as we know that and embrace that, we recognize the urge in us as Paul urges us here to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to our amazing God. So I'm going to get started. What we do, this first verse, what does it say? What are the first two verses say in Romans 12, 1 to 2? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. What's he saying in this first verse? Paul, who writes this appeal, is telling us and those that received it that we have a choice to make. This sense meant by the word urge is to inform us to make a choice based on what has just been presented in chapters 1 to 11. Uh, you'll be relieved to know I'm not about to go through chapters 1 to 11 tonight. I urge you, though, in order to understand the context, to read chapters 1 to 11 of why this, Romans 12, 1 to 2, relates back to that. It's very helpful to know. So now as we read this, on that basis, we now are urged to give our lives to Christ as a living sacrifice. Paul then reminds them that they do this because of the mercy, mercy shown to them by God. He mentions that in chapters 1 to 11. In the same way for us, that we're only able to offer ourselves to God as he works his mercy in us. So God commanded us to do this. And he makes it possible for us to do it in the first place. What's my message here? God is responsible for however we respond to him. In that he's made a way for us to go, 
I can choose God over this world. The only way you're able to choose God over this world is because he has made a way to do that through Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it isn't possible. So the urge, the petition is welcome. It's great. So Paul urges them to present their minds, our minds, body and soul, as a living sacrifice to Christ. Uh, in the context of these verses, first century people, both Jews and pagans, they knew firsthand what sacrifice was all about. They'd seen it. They'd seen it happen. They'd known about it. They'd done it. They're, they're, they're people before them had done it. And so to beg to make them a living sacrifice was a striking image. And it's interesting that he says living sacrifice. It's a, almost a contradiction in terms. How can you be a living sacrifice? I'm going to tell you. The sacrifice is living because it's brought alive to the altar. The sacrifice is living because it stays alive at the altar and it continues. No longer do we need to sacrifice ourselves or sacrifice animals. Now we have Jesus who is the ultimate sacrifice uh, in giving us salvation so that we may approach the throne of God. And then he goes on to verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. You'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, perfect will. Paul warns them that the world system, the popular culture, a manner of thinking that is in rebellion against God will try to conform us, try to pull us in to an ungodly pattern. And that process, he says, must be resisted. This is why it's a choice. I'm going to resist the world and I'm going to choose Christ over the world. The battleground between conforming to the world and being transformed is within the mind of the believer. Christians, he says, must think differently. The word transformed is an ancient Greek word. This is one of those easy ones. You're going to know why, it's, why it's a, uh, this word means transforming. It's metamorpho. Metamorphosis. So we, we use the word metamorphosis. It comes from the Greek metamorpho. It's the same word used to describe Jesus in his transfiguration. And so this transformation is not merely something where it's an episode in your life. Paul is describing it as a major transformation, something where you switch from not being of the world anymore, but being for Christ, something you completely change. You do something different to what you did before. So as we're transformed on the inside, the proof is evident on the outside. As others can see what the good and acceptable and perfect will of God is, through our life, uh, so they respond. So, big question. What's the meaning and application of these verses today? I think, I think it's useful to understand that this has been written in a very particular way. One of the aims of this message is that first we must point ourselves to Christ. And the reason for that is because what will come at you, what will come at each believer is that the world around us will try so hard to draw us away. It will try so hard to make things appear nice and tempting and really good for us. 
But worse than that, what, we, what we're being warned about is not, is not to misunderstand the mercy of God and misplace its purpose. There's a very particular reason why Paul talks about mercy here. First and foremost, mercy has this purpose of showing us that God is gracious and loving towards his creation. But what it's meant to do, as shown by Paul, is to bring us to a desire to want to want to place your will, our will, our wants and needs, everything that we desire, mind, body and soul, at the service of Christ and only him. How God, how has God been so merciful towards us? Some might say, for those that maybe struggle to believe that there is a God, some might say, he's not merciful. He's not very nice either. You read the Bible and people pick up things that they think they know. They pick up one verse in this massive book about God and they read one tiny thing and without any context, suddenly God is this mean God. So how has God been merciful towards us? It's actually quite simple. The fact that we sit here this evening is a demonstration of God's mercy. Right now, before Jesus returns, as we believe, right now, mercy is holding back all the things that we deserve. And I don't mean good things. We, we, we don't deserve this grace. We don't deserve this mercy. But right now, God holds it back. God stops it, gives us amazing mercy. That alone, the fact I can talk to you tonight is a demonstration of God's mercy. That I can stand here, that you can sit there. What we deserve as sinful people who don't honour him is eternity in hell. But instead, because of Jesus' death, because of his resurrection, whilst we still deserve to be condemned, we now receive what we don't deserve. Grace and mercy. give you a few verses here to help. Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Romans 10 verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in the heart, in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So now... What are we now in view of God's mercy? Now what we have, as the verses say, we have a view of God's mercy. Right now, you don't even have to be a full-on believer right now. If I explain to you the concept that Jesus died for sin so that no one right now, at least, goes to hell, right now, common grace exists. Whether you believe or not, there is an opportunity for every single person to come to Jesus. So now I have a view of God's mercy. God's mercy is that we are here today. God's mercy is that we stand right here, right now. For that reason, as people who have given their lives to Jesus, our priority is to worship God. Give him all the glory, all the praise. 
Our priority as Christians is, and this might be, you need to, you need to let me finish this point. This might be controversial. Our priority as Christians is not to be merciful towards people first. That's right here, isn't it? Isn't that why I'm a Christian? Isn't that why I serve God? Because I'm merciful towards others. Yes, but not first. Let me explain. What must come first is being worshipful towards God. Here's what the text says that we just read. Romans 12 verse 1. To offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. That's where it begins. God first, people second. God first, people second. It is before anything else. It all must go to God. So this sacrifice of our bodies, when we give ourselves to God, first and foremost, it's not a sacrifice for sin. Jesus did that, right? We know that. We know Jesus died for sin. So our living, as a living sacrifice, we're not giving our, ourselves for sin. We know that. Okay, that's good. But it's because of Jesus that our sacrifices to God are acceptable. When we sacrifice that which is of or a worldly nature, something that is not right, doesn't honour God, when we sacrifice that and say, no, Lord, I'm, I'm going to make you number one, that's acceptable. And before Jesus, it was not. But now because I say, because of you, Lord, I'm going to do this, and I know whatever I do is dirty, oily rags, but now because of Jesus, I know you find it acceptable. Because I still focus on you. You are number one. Thank you for accepting my offering, my living sacrifice as a person who believes in Christ. If we are acceptable, it is through Jesus Christ, through his perfection, not ours. God wants visible, lived out, bodily evidence that our lives are built on his mercy. It was the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice that puts us, a desire in us to want to be living sacrifices. When you hear of the cross, it's horrible, but it's also so beautiful. He died for those that didn't deserve his death. He rose again for those that didn't deserve to be risen for. So when we look at the cross, when we look through the pages of the Bible, when we look at the gospel and see what Jesus did, I can be a living sacrifice. Thank you, Lord. Living for and serving God in everything we do. And here's the risk. Without this understanding, without understanding, that we make him first. We're at risk of allowing the mercy of God to be wholly compromised. And a wholly compromised version of mercy when we show that mercy to others. Let me explain what that means quickly. If our, if our mercy, our, our, our idea of mercy is not around God, about God, by God, because of him. When we offer mercy to others, it's not godly mercy. It's not Christian mercy. It's my version of mercy. 
when I don't see the amazing mercy of Jesus Christ on my life, and yet I go, I'm going to be merciful to someone else. It's on my terms. I can't do that with Jesus. I can't say, Jesus, can it be on my terms? He says, no, it's on his. So my mercy is then from Jesus. It's all about how he has been merciful towards all of us. So I can't be pious. I can't be big-headed. I can't be clever about it because I'm saved and you're not. Nah, 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 nah. It's not about that. It can't be done. If you're a follower of Jesus, you understand grace and mercy that he has provided. He says in verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. If our good deeds are not expressing the worth of God, then our deeds are not worship. And so it won't be merciful towards those who need to see God. Those who need to see God are not us. Those who need to see God in everything we do. What we're faced with is a world that wants ever so much for us to conform to its way and its desire. It wants us to be like them. The reality is that as churches who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, the challenge for us is to be uncompromisingly merciful and gracious. Does that make sense? How can that be? Uncompromisingly merciful and gracious. I'm merciful and gracious in as much as Jesus told me to be merciful and gracious. Uncompromising. Because we want to bring many to Christ, not to ourselves. It's not merciful to make people feel comfortable or good about going to an everlasting punishment in hell that they face if they do not put their faith in Jesus. However difficult that conversation might be, maybe over years, many years, many months with someone that you've engaged in this conversation with about Jesus, the one reason why you've done that is because you don't want them to go to hell, right? You want them to join in heaven. You want them to know Jesus so that they'll be all together worshipping the Lord forever. So our good deeds, acts of mercy towards those who do not believe has only one purpose. That they see Christ in those deeds. And that we care about their salvation. There's a really tricky thing as Christians that we've got to do. We've got to genuinely want to seek friendship and connection with those around us. Some people we might not naturally connect with, and that's fine too. But what drives all of that anyway, what's all underneath that is, I want to see them saved. I want to see them come to Jesus. I want to be their friend. I do. But I want to see them come to Jesus. So putting worship towards God first is the only way 
the Christian life can be righteously merciful and so be transformed by a renewed mind that live towards God. With God as the first, who gets the first fruit of our worship and praise towards him, with a transforming mind towards Christ, only then can we test and approve what God's good, pleasing, perfect will is, and so live out the will of God. With a renewed mind, not conforming, but being transformed, we're able to avoid the distortion of Scripture. God's will for us is to live a life like Christ, a life of self-denial, love, purity, and whole satisfaction in Christ alone. The purity stuff, the love stuff, loving others, self-denial, it's all so very difficult. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dress this up, church. This is difficult stuff. But you know when that bit gets difficult, you know when that bit when you're I'm struggling to do the self-denial bit, I'm struggling to do the love thy neighbour stuff. Jesus is right there. Lord, I pray for your strength for your Holy Spirit that you'll strengthen me in my resolve to be more self-denying. To want to love more so that they may know Jesus Christ, not because of me, but because of you. Because of your salvation that you have given. So this will to want to live that way, to want to live towards God is spoken of in Romans is a will that can be broken and is. It's a will that can be tested to destruction. So what Paul tells us is that what we need to make the conscious decision every day to approve of God, of what God commanded us to do, is to do it, is to go to him and say, Lord, I need more strength. And then do it in obedience to him. Not that you're impressing your church friends, not that you're impressing your leader or your pastor or whatever. Do it for the Lord. In obedience to him. So then, of course, comes the question, because this is what the verses say. How do I know the will of God to approve of it and then carry it out? How do I know the will of God? God's command on us to carry out is only found in the complete authority of Scripture. A continually renewing mind learns to embrace and accept that command of Scripture on our lives and so makes us competent in the work of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. All Scriptures God breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's aim for us, his want for us, is a new mind, transformed, a new way of thinking, a new way of judging, not just new information. His aim is that we be transformed, we be sanctified, that is continually being more like Christ, being freed by the truth of his revealed word. How do you know the will of God? Read the Bible. Please read the Bible. 
Can I say something really dangerous? Don't take my word for it. Read the Bible for yourselves. If you've, you've noted these, these bits of scripture down, go and check them. You got a problem with it? Please, let's talk about it. I love talking about it. No question is too silly, by the way. Don't ever think any question is too silly. Whatever you're stuck in, whatever you're, you're worried about, whether what means what, oh, please ask a question. If it takes another couple of weeks, ask a question, please. But read the Bible. Don't rely on me being good at conveying to you the perfect word of Scripture every time. I have bad days like you have bad days. I don't do well like you don't do well. So you test and you say, what did that scripture mean in context? Read the Bible. So God's will in commanding us is to apply with the sermon, the scriptures to live a Christ-like life, and in doing so by the means of a renewed mind. So here I want to leave you with a challenge. An application that these verses command of us. We cannot have both conformity with the world and comfort with the world. We cannot have conformity with the world and obedience to Christ. We can't want the things of the world whilst at the same time claiming to be transformed away from it. What does the Bible say? Be in the world, not of the world. Serious. The greatest challenge we face as Christians is to be transformed by a renewing mind. To embrace a renewed mind under Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit is to immerse ourselves in the written word of God. And sometimes we make it, make it more difficult than it actually is. Some people, they like reading plans. They love Bible reading plans. It's great. It's good. We'll never tell you not to. Some people set time when they pray, when they read. Fine if that works for you. Can I just say this though? When we read other books... Isn't it strange that we just pick up those books and start reading them without setting a plan? Yet we take the Bible and we go, well, hold on. Let me lay out this plan. Five minutes on Monday morning. Four minutes on Tuesday. Let's pick up the Bible. It's, it's just easier. In my experience, in when I've tried these programs and things, you lose just the track of it. You just kind of go, ah, I'm not going to do it today. I've got something else to do. Something more pressing. We're not picking up the word like a piece of horrible school homework. I'd describe it this way. It, it's not a horrible piece of school homework. It's a life-giving word of God that should be enjoyed. So when we look at it, when we read through the pages of the journey of God's people from the beginning to the end, that's enjoyable. When we see Jesus die on a cross and then resurrected and raised from the grave, it's enjoyable. 
We need to saturate our mind with the Bible, with God's holy word. And therefore pray that the spirit of Christ will continue to renew us. Not going backwards, but so we can test and approve of his good, pleasing and perfect will. As we do that, we will be able to continue to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And this church becomes our true and proper worship of a holy, merciful God. Who would have thought it was actually that easy? Let me leave you with this verses here uh, before we finish and go into worship this evening. Hebrews 6, 10 to 12. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work. This is encouragement from Hebrews. Uh, the people here were almost backsliding. They wanted to go in to do the, uh, the old traditional Jewish rites and, and ways because actually it was easier. It was easier to do that than to stand up and say, I'm for Christ. If they disappeared into the rites and rituals, they wouldn't get noticed anymore. So Hebrews is this purpose here. He says, look, I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. But God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. I'll leave you with that one line. Be careful and do not become lazy. It's so easy to fall into the worldly way of things and they may seem like they're Christian things to do, but all you need to do, test them against scripture. Test them against the word and God will tell you and you'll be able to prove his good and perfect will. I'm going to pray and then we'll worship together.